The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Crude prices spike after the US and UK launch military strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen in response to a series of attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. Sticky price pressures in the United States, where December CPI comes in higher than expected, while the Dow hits a fresh intraday high before settling flat. Chinese exports grow more than expected in December, but the world's largest economy can't shake off deflationary pressures with consumer prices on their longest falling streak since 2009. Airbus reports record orders in 2023 and maintains its lead over Boeing for the fifth straight year, with the French plane maker's commercial chief hailing demand for its jets. We're now seeing the demand uh, bouncing back faster and stronger than we thought initially, and we like to err on the side of conservatism. A remarkable outcome. And Taiwan goes to the polls on Saturday in a keenly watched election that could prove key in shaping relations between China and the West. Well, welcome to the show. The US and UK have launched strikes on several Houthi targets in Yemen overnight in retaliation uh, to a series of rebel attacks on shipping vessels in the Red Sea. In a statement, President Joe Biden said the strike would send a clear message that hostile attacks by hostile actors in the region will not be tolerated, while Britain said it had hit Houthi fighters' capacity to target further ships. Oil prices, pretty predictably, rose actually more than 2% on the back of the news. Um, as you can see, currently trading uh, $79 per barrel on Brent. Well, let's get to Dan, who can update us the latest from the region. Dan, very good to see you today. Steve, good morning to you. Well, the U.S. Air Force says these targeted strikes hit 60 targets at 16 locations and more than 100 precision-guided munitions of various types were used. At the same time, the U.K. Defence Force says it used four of its RAF Typhoon FGR-4s. They're a very highly sophisticated fighter jet and guided bombs to conduct these precision strikes on two Houthi facilities. One was at a site in, in Bani in northwestern Yemen that officials say was used to launch uh, reconnaissance and attack drones. The other location that was hit here was an airfield at Abs, which was used to launch both cruise missiles and drones over the Red Sea. And it is believed that these strikes were against command and control nodes, munition depots, launching systems and production facilities, as well as air defence radar systems, according to a statement. Officials also say today that the early indications are that these strikes overnight, conducted in the dead of night, were highly successful and the Houthis' ability to threaten merchant shipping has taken a blow. So this is the most recent measure that we've seen from the US uh, and the UK in direct response to what has been a serious rise in tensions in the Red Sea, uh, with Houthi rebels in Yemen continuing to attack 
impact those really critical trade routes and uh, assets in the Red Sea. And uh, of course, uh, this measure now taken overnight was in retaliation and response to those most recent tensions. It also comes uh, as we see the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken in the region meeting with the Israeli leadership, also meeting with Gulf and uh, MENA region allies uh, in order to contain the war escalation risk. It's certainly something that we've been speaking about through the course of this week. Uh, the US clearly hopes that by conducting these strikes, it will be able to perhaps reduce tensions and limit the Houthis' ability to continue to mount attacks against those ships and assets in the Red Sea. Uh, at the same time, a statement from the United States and from the Biden administration says these response these, uh, these strikes are in direct response to those unprecedented Houthi attacks that have endangered U.S. personnel, civilian mar uh, mariners, uh, our partners, jeopardized trade and threaten the freedom of navigation. Uh, the U.S. also says that more than 50 nations have been affected in 27 attacks on international commercial shipping. Crews from more than 20 countries have been threatened or taken hostage in acts of piracy. More than 2,000 ships have been forced to divert thousands of miles to avoid the Red Sea, uh, which it says, of course, can cause weeks of delays to product shipping times. We've also seen commodity prices uh, spiking off the back of that. The cost of shipping has gone up and, of course, the cost of insurance going up as well. But this uh, strike also coming after we saw the Houthis launching their largest attack to date on January 9, which was directly targeting American ships, which is why the United States has been forced to uh, conduct this retaliatory strike. The big question now is exactly how the Houthis will respond and whether or not we will see um, a pushback from that terrorist group. It's back to you. Dan, thank you very much indeed for your coverage there. And you can read more on the overnight US and UK strikes and keep up to date with all the latest developments out of the region at CNBC.com. Um, it was an absolutely fascinating session in the United States, not least the Treasury is on a two-way pull. But, um, well, I mean, the CPI was front and foremost. We've got a guest talking about this in a few moments' time. But uh, a lot going on, Karen. Yeah, the market was really picking and choosing what it wanted to see, I think, in the data. Uh, effectively, we had a, a headline CPI number that was hotter than the market had anticipated just slightly. But uh, many were saying, look, the responses from the Fed speakers wasn't suggesting that that could thwart the process of cutting rates this year. And in terms of market expectations, futures are still betting on a rate cut in March at 73%. That's the probability they were at 68% a day earlier. So, in fact, ratcheting up the bets on a March liftoff for those rate cuts... But if you look at some of the commentary, to me, it looked as though some of those speakers were still waiting for a little bit more confirmation about the inflation journey from here. And don't forget, we're talking about the, the headline CPI, the core CPI and the official CPI read here, separate to the PC that the Fed uses as its preferred gauge. And that was one of the excuses that many market participants used yesterday for still not being spooked around what we've seen in terms of the market reaction, because we have moved a long way in terms of market participants pricing in the expectation of a rate cut, that rally that got going in November, supersized in December, thanks to the monetary policy pivot from Jay Powell. On markets, though, we didn't exactly stray far, did we? The Nasdaq, uh, no movement by the finish. Uh, the S&P, three points to the downside, and the Dow up by 15 points, uh, barely a fraction. So it was uh, somewhat uneventful at an index level. In terms of under the hood, though, don't forget over the course of the trading week, it has been very much a tech-heavy rally. 
rally and uh, what we've seen in that area has been around the semiconductors to the fang stocks. Banks a little bit more cautious into the report cards we saw that started uh, yesterday. So the markets, of course, digesting the latest around those interest rate expectations, cooling financial conditions for the banks and what it means for profitability from here. In terms of treasuries, now let's take a look. We did move higher on the 10-year before moving lower. And uh, you can see we're 3.98 at this stage. So we're back below that 4% handle. We've been slightly above it in recent sessions and we're perched just above four and a quarter at the short end, the two year. To the dollar and the impact this morning, you're seeing sterling and euro both fraction high. So we're 127.70 plus on sterling and we're 109.73, the higher end almost at the 110 handle on euro dollar. As for dollar yen, we've got a reversal here, 145 for dollar yen, dollar yuan perched to 7.16. I think just worth noting before we move on that the ECB as well also talking about uh, whether we get back to target here and uh, effectively the market uh, got a glimpse into the thinking that if we have some confirmation that inflation is guiding back to two percent then look those rate cuts could be moving too and you saw some uh, movement on swaps as well we've had pricing around a quarter point rate cut in April from the ECB and a 30% chance of an outsized 50 basis point cut. In total for this year for the ECB, 148 basis points in easing has been priced in. I think important to talk about that given that in the context, this is uh, in the range of what the market's expecting for the Fed too. Absolutely. Look, um, well, I'll tell you what, we've got a great guest waiting. So we'll, we'll get to that first because lots to discuss. US headline inflation, as, as we've been pointing out all morning, and we've only been on the show nine minutes, uh, rose more than expected in December. Now, look, it wasn't the biggest move upside compared to expectations, but it was disappointing on the upside and just underlines a point, doesn't it? It was up 0.3% on the month and 3.4% from a year ago. The core figure, excluding food and energy, also rose 0.3% on the month and 3.9% on the year, although the annual print was the lowest since May 2021. Now, markets, of course, raised their expectations of a March Fed cut to just under 70%, which is just extraordinary given that data. Fed officials remained ambiguous, as they would really, on, on how the data might play out and into rate policy. The Chicago Fed President, Austin Goolsby, um, said it marked the close of a, quote, a Hall of Fame year for falling inflation. Um, well, that's not falling inflation. He knows better than what we do, that inflation, it's disinflation. Inflation hasn't fallen. Inflation's up 3.9%, we just discussed this, uh, but insisted the Fed will not tie itself uh, to committing to cuts. Meanwhile, the Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester said the modest uptick in price pressure suggested it's still too early for the Fed to consider cuts. It's so subtle, this thing, isn't it? It's interesting because I was looking at what the, ana- the analysis was and saying, look, uh, effectively you're seeing that there's no real pushback from the Fed speakers around rate cuts. And I thought that's not what I read into some of the commentary. As I pieced it all together, it felt as though you still had a slightly hawkish tilt in some of the commentary. You have a position. Most of our uh, uh, contributors, most people who are writing there, they have a position, whether it's a verbal position or actual physical market position. And and they read what they want to read in order to try and get some momentum going for their school of thought, don't they? Here's the quote. Uh, Last night, they all sounded incrementally more dovish than they had previously. We didn't hear such a strong pushback on the idea of a March cut. Uh, Barkin saying it did little to clarify the path of inflation. Goolsby saying that he was not sure if the data indicated enough progress for the Fed's cutting rates. And 
Alistair saying a March rate cut was too early in my estimation. I don't know what they were looking at. Let's get to Alex Morris, CIO of FM Investments. Alex, help us out here. What did you hear from the Fed speakers on the back of the CPI that indicates we're cutting rates in March? Uh, nothing. It, I don't know that any of the Fed speakers made clear that a March rate cut was a good idea or, or even actively being considered. And I, and I agree, I can't find where this incremental dovishness is. I mean, if you if you were grasping at straws, we could look at the average and say, the great news is the CPI number coming in where it is didn't cause a reversion to a rate hike and discussions of, of such sort of thinking, which is, I think is good news because it shows that the opening game of this chess match was played out, but now the much more subtle and nuanced game is going to start to happen. Uh, and that the Fed clearly is going to hold on to its positions a little bit longer than any one print would allow, which is good news. Talk us through the headline CPI in the core, Alex. What did you make of it, though? Did it suggest that we're moving in the right direction or did you have some concerns about the, the headline number? Well, I think the headline number, you know, was pretty close to expectation and I don't want to make too much out of missing by ten, you know, a tenth of a point. Uh, but I think the key is that disinflation is starting to slow down. And now some of the, the core and super core number, you know, is going to have some truly lagging statistics in it. But it does show that it's going to be harder to make incremental progress from this point. And you can sort of see it coming out from some of the commentators. And I think you're going to hear it from the Fed governors over the next few weeks when you start to hear the Fed speak of, okay, now we've got this basis effect, or they start really dissecting individual items, which is what sort of the indication of, okay, now, now we're out of the charted waters where simple policy makes sense. Now we need to be truly responsive. And I think in that super core and that slowing of the, the pace of change is where this gets hard. And where I think this is going to take longer to play out. Um, you know, last year when we were talking, I thought that rate cuts were the second half of the year. I'm undeterred in that view, uh, given what's happened so far this year. And I I'm, I'm think I'm reinforced in that view, given the way the average message from the governors has come across thus far. Alex, a very simple question and lovely to see you today, sir. Um, what do our viewers do next then? What, they're all desperate to find the next great investment. Is it in the bond market? Is it in the equity market? Is it a combination of both? Well, I think if if you're of these the folks who went from 68% to 70 plus percent of thinking that uh, March is coming, maybe time to reposition to where you were last year. I think uh, tech stocks probably still have a good year ahead of them. It seems like even if cuts were to start sooner than expected, which again, I'm not counting on, there's a coin flip chance that they still outperform markedly. So that's not a bad place to be. Uh, but now I, I still like the bond market. I, I've always liked the treasury market in this environment, particularly the short end and starting to extend out duration. That was a good trade last year. There's still some left in that. But this year, I like adding some investment grade risk to the, the equation. If rates do stay higher for longer, which is the intent, most of the larger companies have had the ability to keep fixed rate borrowing in through most of last year, but they're going to reprice this year. And I think investors will like being in that investment grade space with highly rated companies and now freshly minted higher coupons that will look very nice in monthly dividends. Yeah, I, I hear that, Alex, and that makes a lot of sense in many ways. What about the other end of the curve, which has quite frankly had an extraordinary rally, despite concerns about delinquencies, about repayments, about rolling overs of debt? I'm talking about the high yield end or the old fashioned junk end of the market as well. 
you're not, for my mind, historically getting paid the same level you would have done at previous levels of the, the curve of the cycle as well. But, but it doesn't matter what I think. What do you think? I think you can still do well there, but it's a basis effect because most of the high yield debt that you see now has an attractive yield, but has a low current coupon rate because a lot of that debt also was priced in two, three years ago. Uh, some of the new issues in the high yield market coming uh, coming to market are, are interesting, um, but I'm, I'd be a little worried there. If you're going to go in the high yield space, I'd stay into the top 100, top 200 names, which historically have a low default rate. Uh, and that's where I think high yield individual name calling gets truly hard. It's not the yield of a few po basis points, more or less than your computers. It's a, a chance of return of capital versus return uh, on capital. And the top end of that market still looks pretty strong, um, but I don't know that you're gonna be paid all that much more versus some of the stronger uh, investment grade names or things that are, are more borderline. If you are looking around in that space, make sure to, to be very specific and look for things that might have a chance of falling into the investment grade space by the end of the year, not falling into the no return space by the end of the year. Alex, the market yesterday, it had an excuse to sell off. It didn't take it. In fact, we saw investors come up with plenty of other excuses not to sell off. This on the back of what has been a week of gains, particularly for the Nasdaq, up more than 3%. What is it saying about the momentum around major markets and in particular tech names? Well, I think one, it shows that there's a lot of cash that wanted to come into the equity markets that was just sitting around waiting for that opportunity. And it certainly happened because I don't see there's any major catalyst or driver from the news today to, to indicate that tech stocks versus or any stocks in general were a great place to be. Um, but the, the second item, I think, is where I should it's always hard to, to argue against. There is this just undying optimism of large cap U.S. companies and you know, I may not have to always understand it, but I certainly can see the trend when it's there. And that trend has certainly been in place. There's a lot of folks who who bet against it in 2023. We weren't one of them. And I don't see any reason to change that bet, even if it's just on the pure momentum of market participants wanting the U.S. large cap indices to go up. And it seems they have willed that thus far. I don't think they'll be successful at willing the Fed into doing their bidding for them. But I do think for the short while, the numbers are going to be supported by their enthusiasm, even if I can't find all the right reasons to agree with them. Um, really good to see you today, Alex. Uh, talking a lot of sense. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Alex Morris, who is the CIO at FM Investments. Right. On a programming note, we're going to hear plenty more about Europe's policy path next week when we speak with the Bank of Portugal governor, Maria Centino. The Dutch central bank governor, Klaas Knot, and the ECB board member, Robert Holtzman, as well as the Bank of France governor, François Villeray de Gallo. Uh, tune in for those conversations on CNBC, live from the World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, where coverage kicks off on Monday. You packed? No. I've isolated a few items. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no exactly. That's exactly what I've done. Isolated a few items. I found the thermals, which is the key issue. Well, I had those ready, having just been skiing recently. Uh, because that's interesting, because you haven't mentioned it. <laughs> <coughs> I don't think our viewers are aware of... Where did you go? I was actually in Switzerland, No you way. Whereabouts? Not Maritz. You weren't. Mm, I knew that because you didn't mention it every day this week, which is fascinating. <laughs> oh, right. So, Arabile, Karen was in Samaritz. I don't know if you knew, but I had no idea. I had no idea either. I only saw the red jacket once, twice, every day. Nonetheless, coming up on the show, Chinese, de Chinese December exports beat expectations, but confirm a first annual decline in seven years will break down the numbers. That's coming up next. Plus, 
A pivotal election year kicks off as voters now prepare to head to the polls in Taiwan. We'll be live in Taipei for that and we will discuss the latest developments in the Israel-Hamas conflict with Mark Regev, the senior advisor to Israel's Prime Minister and former Israeli ambassador to the UK. That's coming up at 7.45 CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Uh, welcome back. This uh, Asian data was fascinating, or the Chinese data specifically. Um, let's have a look at the equities first of all. Let's see what they're doing. Um, the Nikkei, 1.5% higher, apart from that very tempered performance uh, out of mainland China down, well, flat on the session for Shanghai Composite. Really interesting. The data in China on exports over the year was really underwhelming, but the exports in December grew more than expected. But deflationary pressures continued in the world's second largest economy. Really interesting data. So let's get to Lynn, who can break down the two aspects to, the, uh, to this for us. Yeah, I've been pouring over the Chinese data. Lots to say. Nice to see you this morning. Good morning to you, Steve. I think when we look at uh, the data as a whole, it is still showing a mixed picture when it comes to China's economy. We've been speaking to a number of economists on Asia's programming, and I guess one thing that they could all agree on is more stimulus is needed, particularly from the fiscal side of things. Let's start with uh, inflation to begin with. That was broadly in line with expectations with the consumer price index uh, continuing to show deflationary pressure. Uh, we're seeing a third straight uh, a month of declines down 0.3 of a percent. That has been broadly put down like the month prior to a falling uh, food prices, particularly pork, which has a pretty sizable weighting in the CPI uh, basket. That was uh, down 26 percent year on year as the country deals with excess supply. On the producer side of things, it fell again 2.7% on year. That is the 15th straight month of decline. So it's certainly showing here that this isn't transitory, that this is entrenched deflation on the factory gate side, particularly as some in, uh, industries are dealing with overcapacity issues as well as price competition. Now, on the trade side, the exports, it was a beat. It came in at 23 3% year on year. We've got some economists are saying on Asia programming that they are seeing some green shoots come through. The question is, can this sustain and grow into 2024, given a lot of the macro uncertainties we're facing, a lot of elections coming through this year, and what that means for trade relations. Uh, now, on the import side of things, it was also up by a fifth after being in negative territory. 
So signs that that productivity is picking up despite the overhang in the property sector. We also got some numbers in relation to commodities as we, of course, close off 2023. Uh, China has been buying a record levels of coal, iron ore, as well as uh, oil. And uh, economists that we've been talking to saying that that is likely to continue into this year as the government continues to push forward with its infrastructure projects to try and stimulate the economy. Guys, it's back to you. Thank you very much indeed for that report. Uh, Bitcoin rallied to a more than two-year high above $49,000. It did lose a bit of momentum thereafter, but the spike came in the wake of the SEC decision to approve the first ever US Bitcoin ETFs. A landmark moment for the crypto industry. Let's take a look at that chart a second. Isn't that absolutely fascinating? I know we're going to move on very quickly, but but look at that. That's exactly what it was trading, you know, give or take a couple hundred bucks before. But it, had, it did have that very big spike. So you did get some people coming in, creating a bit of momentum to the upside. But now it's back in. I mean, the range over the week is... is well, the mean of the range is pretty consistent. So you do wonder whether more volume brings different trading patterns as well. Yeah, so don't forget do, yesterday, it should. 4.6 billion worth of shares traded hands on Thursday afternoon. Right. I can't imagine Bitcoin has had that extra push in the, the volume in recent months, given all the issues that have dogged the industry. Do you know, I don't care about the overall volume figure. What I, well, I do, but what I really care about is whether this is um, practitioners who are already in trading mm. or whether it's new money coming in. That's exactly. what I really care about because that would tend to show because yeah, you've got your overall volume chart. Let's say it did this. It went up like this for the viewers. It went up like that. But, but then if you've got, if, if the volume is just being matched by existing players, but if it's new money coming in, yeah. then that for me is really fascinating because that's the whole point that of the ETF. That's a great point. It could be the transition of some of the whales using this product versus uh, other products yeah. that are used to date. Yeah. Or, or, dare I say it, them trying to generate some activity. And, you know, there's not not uncommon to see people trying to generate activity, generate excitement by just putting in a few trades. We've got more on this sizzle than fizzle to read more on how the world reacted to the first ever US Bitcoin ETFs being approved. You can head to CNBC.com. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.